Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Oh, and welcome back to Strictly VC Download, where we turn your dreams into reality. <laughs> this week has flown by. There was a disturbing story about Meta's head of community development, who was the target of an underage sex sting and is, of course, no longer with Meta. We also saw the CEO of the unicorn company Bolt taking to Twitter again with another seemingly well-intentioned tweet storm that managed to go wrong. There were also lots of giant funds that were announced. I covered the $3 billion in capital commitments that Thrive Capital of New York just collected, money that brings the fund's total assets under management to $16 billion, which is a lot for a 12-year-old outfit, though. As some listeners may know, Thrive has a sizable stake in Stripe, the payment company that was valued at $95 billion by its investors last year, so you can understand their enthusiasm. We also almost missed this news sitting in our inbox today, but General Catalyst, the now 22-year-old bi-coastal venture firm that got its start in Boston just announced a giant haul, taking the wraps off $4.9 billion in capital commitments across three new funds. Not last, we're hearing about a prominent investor who's about to jump ship. There seems to be a lot of that happening right now, too. In any case, in the middle of all of this, we caught up with this week's guest, Brendan Wallace, the founder of Fifth Wall, which is among the very first venture firms to focus narrowly on prop tech and has grown by leaps and bounds since, backed by strategic investors like CBRE and Lennar and Cushman Wakefield, outfits that need to know what's around the corner and what new technologies are available to them. We wanted to talk with Wallace about a new Europe-focused fund that it just opened, but it also seemed like the right time to catch up with him, given that Wallace was both our first guest on Strictly VC Download and the first guest to talk with us from quarantine. I think we're all hoping to close the loop on this long global nightmare, and this seemed like one small way to do that. That conversation with him is coming up in 30 seconds, but first, a word from our sponsor. Tegas is changing the way corporate development teams identify and get smart on startups. Prior to Tegas, finding actionable information on a startup before reaching out directly was at best challenging and at worst impossible. With Tegas's platform of one-on-one expert call transcripts, corporate development teams harness research from the world's best VCs on thousands of startups. Read firsthand accounts of how a startup's product is used by its customers, how it fits into the competitive landscape, its true differentiation, and its go-to-market strategy, all without going outside the walls of your team. To see why corporate development teams use Tegas, visit tegas.co slash strictlyvc to start a free trial. That's T-E-G-U-S dot C-O slash strictlyvc. Check it out today. And now here's our interview with Brendan Wallace of Fifth Wall. Brendan, I am happy to see you. I was just talking to Alex about the fact that the last time we saw you, you had just come back from somewhere in China and you were self-quarantining at your home in Los Angeles. And I think you were the first person I knew to do that and to go through that whole process. 
It's phenomenal to think what's happened in the last two years. It's funny. I was just listening to the first five minutes of our podcast, which was Valentine's Day of 2020. Yeah. And it's like this bizarre time capsule because the, the way that we were talking about COVID just sounds so absurd. To later. <laughs> like I'm offering the insight that I've gleaned from being in Singapore. <laughs> like no one knows anything. It's, right. It's just this fascinating flashback that was really unique for me to hear. I should listen again. I mean, we were so oblivious. It seemed so crazy that you were even staying in your office in order to protect everyone. And what a precursor, because <laughs> I was literally talking about how in Singapore, there's these shortages of masks and hand sanitizers. Mm -hmm. And you were like, oh, that's so <laughs> interesting. <laughs> and it just was this forebearer of what was about to come. And right. I was literally just sitting in my house in Venice, California, quarantining as like the only person in the U.S. <laughs> doing that. At the time. So. <laughs> Thank God we had no idea what was coming. What's so amazing to me and congratulations on all the firm's success is the fact that this young company, I think your firm is like, what, four years old at this point, maybe five yeah, years old? Just about. You're managing $3 billion and you raised so much of this money at a time when it's certainly counterintuitive. I mean, everyone left their commercial real estate buildings, went inside and your firm picked up steam, which is pretty incredible. And now, of course, you've got this new $140 million fund that you just closed to focus on Europe. So That's right. Maybe to start, how are employers even motivating people to get back into the office? And is that a concern for you? I think employers are trying everything. And when I say everything, I mean, some of them are inclined not to go back to offices. Some major employers have talked about downsizing their physical real estate footprint. And I think COVID was a, a lightning rod for some of those considerations, like how much should companies actually be remote? There are other companies that are really excited to get back to their offices I would probably put fifth wall closer to the latter camp than the former in the sense that we're relatively young. So half of our life has been in a virtual environment. We really miss being in an office. Now we have a lot more offices than we did when we last spoke, but I think we're really excited about going back. What I haven't seen clearly is that there's a consistent uniform direction from employers on this is the date on which we expect people to be back in the office. And I think the reason is that the expectation of what being in an office means has changed. Mm. It, and I think it has probably forever changed. I don't think that is a circumstantial or situational dynamic around COVID. I think that's a forever thing. I wonder about that. It just seems so much is snapping back to the way it was. So I wondered what you could share in terms of what you're seeing, what new services are becoming must-haves, whether you think these types of developments are permanent. Sounds like you think they are. Yeah, I think the real estate goes back a little bit and I'll try to connect this to real estate tech, but the real estate industry is this fascinating industry. It's one of the few industries that never had R&D, right? It, it, if you look on most companies and on their balance sheet, on their budgets, they have teams, they have assets and they have real spend every year on R&D. The real estate industry never has spent on R&D. I would challenge you to find any real estate company anywhere in the world that has an R&D budget. The real estate industry has not had historically to be innovative. And it's really only been probably in the last four or five years that the real estate industry has become actually quite innovative. And it just so happens that during this age of enlightenment 
for the real estate industry, we had this macro shock, which changed a lot of things, but it particularly changed how people think about physical space, the safety of physical space, the necessity of being in certain physical spaces, the demand for different spaces. And there's so much to talk about there. It would be hard to unpack in one podcast, everything from what we were just talking about, the return to offices, to the explosive growth for industrial real estate based on the explosive growth of e-commerce, and even how we think about our physical spaces and their public health and personal health implications. So a lot of things have hit the real estate industry in a very short period of time. This juggernaut of tech and prop tech, which has now become this massive category of venture, covid which shook the foundations of a lot of the core behavioral assumptions around how people use space. And I think the net of it is that real estate owners are certainly the forward-looking real estate owners are looking at how they can truly differentiate space. There's a lot of commoditized space, right? And so now owners, they've had a real test of the demand for that space. How do we differentiate that space? How do we make that more tech-enabled? How do we make that more, quote, omnichannel, right? Which is a, a phrase that has been used in retail and e-commerce, meaning both online and offline. How do we make that space inclusive of all the technological progress that our employees have enjoyed over the last 10 years? Because historically, it really didn't. And so that is leading to waves of tech adoption around hybrid work remote and all of the productivity tools that connect those two things. It's leading to innovations around public health, how we think about air quality, indoor air quality is a mm. very, very big deal. And it's even changed the way real estate owners self-conceptualize, meaning real estate owners, I think, traditionally thought of themselves as they own buildings. And they didn't think about the public health or the macroeconomic or the almost anthropological implications of owning a building. But when you're confronted with a pandemic, whether you close that building, how you resource that building the air quality considerations, which in turn impacts your cash flows, all of those things are thrust on the real estate industry. And so the real estate industry in the last two years has had to grapple with questions I think it never really had to grapple with before. And the nice thing is that technology is there. It's created this voracious demand from large institutional owners for real estate tech to solve parts of that. There's so many services that could be offered. I had talked to a company out here recently called Phylogen that's really interesting. It's focused around microbial genomics and it installs sensors and swabs and goes into spaces and tries to determine whether or not somebody who has COVID has been in that space over a certain span of time. I'm just wondering, what are the nice-to-haves and what are the must-haves for some of these bigger corporate clients you have? Air quality monitoring is getting close to being a must-have. That is something that I think all companies are asking their landlords. And I don't think most companies, when they were signing a lease in 2019, were asking a lot about indoor air quality and infiltration, and now they are. And so monitoring that, reporting on that, tracking on that, I think is going to become quite standard. I think alongside that, just knowing who's in your building. I know that sounds like a very simple thing to do, and technology is obviously a part of that. But most buildings don't really know who's in them. And most companies, for that matter, don't know who's in their offices and who's going into what rooms, when and where. Now, there are reasons to want to know that information and to make buildings and make assets and make physical spaces sensorily aware, right, of how they're being used. But now there's public health reasons to know that too, right, for contact tracing. So I think spaces are going to get more tech enabled. The way I always think about what smart buildings means is that 
we have smartphones, we have smart devices, we have smart TVs, we have a lot of small smart things, but we don't have a lot of big smart things like buildings. And buildings are just comprised of a bunch of small things that are going to become smart. So everything from turnstiles to elevators to doors to literally tables and chairs are going to have industrial IoT devices over time that will make the tenant and also the landlord more aware of how people are functionally using space. And what's interesting is it goes back to that point I made earlier around real estate owners are being forced to become sociologists again, right? And real estate owners never really had to think through that at like a deep sociological level. And now they do. It's fascinating for me because I've always loved the real estate industry and I've always loved that dimension of it, which is it's this thing that's hiding in plain sight that is where we create everything, right? So it always fascinates me in that regard. Brandon, on the one hand, I can see why a lot of these things are must-haves, why people need to feel secure when they go to work. But on the other hand, if I were an owner of one of these buildings and I had all of these tenants that were canceling on me and I had interest rates going up and I had a lot of loans that I had to pay off, I would feel like I'm under a lot of pressure. Is there a lot of upheaval that's going on now among landlords? Is there a lot of consolidation going on? Not as much as you'd think. Everything you said stands to reason that would be a dynamic uh, that's you know at play in the real estate industry, but we really haven't seen it. This is not like a 2007, 2008 moment. And there's a bunch of reasons, I think, for that, meaning we're still not out of it. We actually don't know what the other side of this looks like. We don't know the steady state of how humans are going to consume space differently. You've also had historically low interest rates, and you've also had high levels of collaboration between tenants and their real estate owners around how to work through this. So much more collaborative because you're typically dealing with the enterprise level. People weren't abandoning their homes in the same way that we saw, for example, in 2007, 2008. This was much more about businesses, and businesses are much less likely to abandon their offices so you've seen just higher levels of collaboration and working through these issues. And a lot of those tenants don't know exactly what their 2025 real estate plan is. So we probably haven't seen the full effect of what COVID will reap. You know, Brendan, I did want to ask, considering you do have a global view into what's happening out there, you mentioned that we're not out of this yet. You know, if this was a baseball game, what inning do you think we're in? Mark Andreessen was doing a Twitter Q&A earlier this week, and somebody asked him what's one of the most surprising things that you've learned recently. And he said that California is just one third of the way through COVID. And of course, a lot of people are like, wait, what? What do you mean by that? And he'd already moved on to the next question. I think it's a great question. And I think you have to dimensionalize it. Because if the question is, what inning are we in with respect to the macroeconomic impact of COVID? I would agree with him. We're probably in the third inning. There's so much bad, I'd say a lot bad, that we have yet to see the effects of in terms of what just happened in the US economy and the global economy. With respect to the behavioral change that we saw largely around public health, I think we're closer to like the seventh inning stretch right now, meaning I do not think it's over. Absolutely. But I think we're at this inflection point where public sentiment is at a level. The duration has been so long that I think we're going to see an easing of a lot of the behavioral changes and behavioral restrictions mm -hmm. that we saw over the last two years. In terms of technology and prop tech in, in particular, it's been odd because everything I mentioned around the dynamics that are happening in the real estate industry is true, but yet demand for real estate tech is voracious right now from large real estate corporations. 
capital markets and funding into real estate tech is unprecedented. $32 billion went into prop tech. To me, that's a staggering number, right? When I started Fifth Wall with my co-founder, prop tech wasn't even a phrase. Mm-hmm. We had to call it real estate tech. And at that time in 2016, $4 billion went into what we today call prop tech. Wow. It's almost felt like we've seen an acceleration in certainly prop tech capital Mm -hmm. markets. And I would say largely venture and tech capital markets as well. It's so interesting. So a lot of money sounds like it's gone into sensors, air quality, probably biometrics. Another thing I was wondering about, I'd seen New York City Mayor Eric Adams today talking about trying to get workers back into the office. And he said, when employees don't return to work, they don't eat lunch at a nearby restaurant. They don't shop at local stores or take their clothes to the dry cleaners. I'm wondering if challenges like that create opportunities for outfits like yours, as well as challenges, you talked about e-commerce companies taking over more space. Just wondering what you're seeing on that front. You're seeing, I think, a lot of the trends that were already well underway before COVID, but you've seen an acceleration of them. It's like we pulled the future forward with respect to e-commerce adoption. You had this one-time, almost forced adoption right, of e-commerce and on-demand delivery because mm-hmm. people were in their homes and they were not going to stores. So we really tested uh, the infrastructure right, that had already been built, funded by a lot of venture capital dollars to create all of this on-demand infrastructure that we rely on to shop and buy goods online and to even get groceries in 15 minutes. It was a step function change. And I think that's what we saw. The impact is that, look, retail has been a challenge sector of real estate for the last decade. E-commerce as a percent of total US commerce is still actually relatively small. It's still less than 20%. So there's a lot of change that is still yet to come. And so the local stores, local dry cleaners, and how those businesses, small local businesses will be affected by many of these larger logistics-based tech-enabled service companies and on-demand delivery companies. If you were to use your analogy, Connie, of what inning are we in? We we jumped from inning one to inning three, Mm -hmm. but we've still got a lot of innings left to play. Right. You know, I also just wondered... um, I know that your firm is in all kinds of bets, but I also noticed that you've been investing in a lot of more consumer residential type plays. The short-term luxury company Wander, I saw that you were involved in recently. There's a tech-enabled home building company called Homebound. You participated in a new round. Is it possible to say if you're focusing more on that than you were two years ago? I actually think in prop tech, because today, Fifth Wall, across our $3 billion, we have two different distinct strategies or franchises. We have our prop tech strategy and our climate tech strategy. And in our prop tech strategy, it has remained pretty consistent throughout the last five years. The area where I'd say we've seen the most change is in and around climate tech, which is partially why we built that entire fund franchise to capitalize on this massive, urgent, hugely important, hugely capital intensive imperative for the real estate industry to decarbonize, which is something it hasn't done as well, very much like how it has not adopted technology. So that's been the biggest shift we've seen. Prop tech and climate tech are colliding. And I think that is something that is absolutely here to stay. What are some of the more interesting technologies that you've seen in the last six to 12 months on the climate tech front? So many. So I'll start with something very simple, and then I'll get to something very complex. The simple one is a company called Sealed. Most homes in the US don't have heat pumps or the proper insulation. And from an energy savings perspective, that can have a very profound impact. 
it's basically built a direct consumer business where they're able to install heat pumps and the proper insulation for homes based on their climates and their geographies at enormous scale. So very, very simple, but an consumer education exercise paired with a direct consumer business and also a financing business now that I think is really exciting. On the more tech forward side, we invested in a company called Turntide, which makes a very efficient, small electric motors. And you wouldn't necessarily think of a building as having a lot of motors in it. But if you think about it, motors move things around and you have to move a lot of stuff around a building, water, air, people. So in doing that, there's a lot of motors that operate in a building. And these motors are 30% more efficient than your traditional motor. And so buildings account for 40% of the US's electricity consumption. Staggering statistic, right? Because real estate is only 13% of US GDP. So real estate is this massive outsized energy consumer, and most of the hardware inside our buildings is inefficient. And so Turntide is basically building these very efficient motors that you can install in your HVAC system and achieve very simple savings with the exact same HVAC infrastructure. So that's another investment that we've made out of our climate tech fund. But we've done now nine investments. They range from green hydrogen to industrial IoT, to carbon sequestering solutions, to concrete and materials, to ESG and monitoring solutions. So Mm. it runs the gamut in that fund. I also just wondered what you make of this growing spate of companies that is focused on lease back models, rent back models like Divi, where they're inviting people into homes and then saying, we're going to charge you market rent and you're going to overtime be the owner of this home. I think they're interesting in ways. I also am a little bit concerned that these are models that we've seen in the past that end up maybe getting extended people who never end up becoming homeowners. It's a little bit of field, but I figured you you would probably have some insight into this whole space because it just seems like it's really ballooned in the last couple of years. Yeah. So you're right that it has ballooned. And you're also right that these are not entirely novel business models or financial innovations. The concept of reverse mortgages and rent to own businesses been around for quite some time. And as you mentioned, they were rife with consumer abuse and fraud and just consumer manipulation that that I think was really bad. And so as a result, they developed, I think, a unsavory reputation. Now, with that said, the merits of those business models, right? Consumers don't necessarily want to own a home at any given point in time, but there's reasons why they want to accumulate equity wealth in a home, for Mm -hmm. example, or there's short-term changes in their life that require some flexibility and financial instrumentation is a way to solve that and provide that flexibility to the consumer, whether it's a reverse mortgage, whether it's a rent to own model. And I think what is positive about what some of these newer companies are doing, and actually Fifth Wall was involved in the founding of one of them, Invitation Homes, the biggest single family rental business in the US just invested in called Pathway. They're just larger and they're more accountable and they're more forward in how they educate the consumer. And part of this is because we have things like the CFPB that ensure that this is the case, but also like most fintech businesses, scale matters, right? So to get the best rates to consumers, to provide the best solutions, you want to be larger. You want to have large solutions. I don't think it's it's precisely accurate to say that because these businesses were bad in the past, they have to be bad in the future. Mm -hmm. I think there's always the risk that they go in that direction, 
But I think there are some real reasons to be excited about the innovation we're seeing today and why it actually is good for consumers, for consumers to have more optionality around how they finance assets and the flexibility financially that can introduce to their life. Speaking of questions that might be far afield, what do you think about investing in the metaverse? Are there prop tech opportunities in Sandlot, in virtual spaces? There are, for sure. Um, you know, we don't do it yet. I, I think we're excited about it in the sense that there's a lot of real innovation that can happen in the metaverse, and a lot of it is real estate related. I don't think we've seen anything super exciting. Our focus has very much been on real world technology. Like if you think about Fifth Wall, we as a firm are focused on real estate tech, tech for physical spaces, actual spaces, like real atoms, right? So most of our innovation has focused there. That's where it started. And now we're doing in climate tech. Again, that is around physical spaces. So we are excited by the metaverse, like everyone else. It's enticing. It's new. It's cool. But I would not say that we have fully leaned in yet to investing in it because there's so many more pressing right. and I think more interesting <laughs> real world problems that we have yet to solve. And I don't I mean this- Brendan Wallace. <laughs> and I, I don't mean that to be a, a job at anyone who's investing in the metaverse because th there are reasons to always be excited about anything new and interesting, even if we can't precisely see the direct tangible benefit to human lives on earth in our, in our terrestrial reality. Because if that's the lens you viewed everything through, you'd never innovate. What I mainly question is, do we have our priorities right? Meaning it's not that we shouldn't do it. It's that is the amount of capital and the amount of attention, the amount of time and the amount of energy and the amount of just brilliant minds that are pouring into solving problems in these fictionalized worlds, right? Building avatars or games or filters for our faces. It's not to suggest that's not great because there's actually real innovation that can come out of that. A lot of innovation came out of the space race and us putting a man on the moon, which it's very similar to. So it's just, are we doing too much of it at the expense of the innovation that can more practically improve our terrestrial lives. And my sense is we are. <laughs> I was say, the answer is definitely yes. Although I completely agree that it's fascinating and it's too soon to know what'll come out of it. Obviously, before I let you go, I should ask you about Europe. What's different? What's the same? What opportunities are you chasing there that are specific to European countries? It's a lot of the same from a business model and from a innovation and from an opportunity perspective. Real estate tends to be a very geographically constrained business, <laughs> right? Definitionally, it's a business based on space. So real estate markets tend to be very regional. And as a result, innovation for the real estate industry tends to be more regional than other technology spheres. There's a US prop tech ecosystem, and we've seen that there's a growing European prop tech ecosystem. And not all of that is language. Part of it is language, of course, but a lot of it is just there are idiosyncrasies to owning a building in London that are unique to London and not consistent with owning a building in New York. There are some things that are totally the same, of course, but we've seen prop tech be fragmented or balkanized geographically in these ecosystems. And so we wanted to start a European fund in part because we have so many big European real estate owners like British land and Jacina, the largest owner in France, and Merlin, the largest owner in Spain, they're focused on technologies that are immediately applicable to them. And those tend to be companies that are based in Europe. So the 140 million euros that we raised for our European fund is really that. Now, if we have 3 billion, 
the rest of our three billion is focused on North America. So it still is a relatively small portion of Fifth Wall's assets under management. But I think it's an area that's poised for enormous growth. And by the way, I think the same is true of Asia. And that's obviously a broad brush, right? To say Asia, but lots of the markets in Southeast Asia, in China, in Japan, in Australia, in India, they have the same challenges around innovation in the real estate industry that the US had five years ago. And I'll just give an, a quick example. Open Door. We were one of the early and very large investors in Open Door in the US, which is an iBuyer. And then we invested in Loft, which is the biggest iBuyer in Brazil and South America. And then we invested in Clicalia, which is the biggest iBuyer in Europe. And so there's a real pattern recognition to seeing these businesses because when you think about a business like Open Door, its market is so large. It's the US residential housing market. It doesn't have a need to expand internationally. It may, but the market is just so large in the US that I think a lot of these iBuyers are going to be regional or even country specific. And so that's pretty exciting to think about when you think about a prop tech investor, because there's a lot of countries, a lot of residential real estate value, a lot of inefficiency in those markets in every country on earth. So are you looking for an iBuyer in Asia? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, speaking of that, in Europe specifically, is there a fifth wall? Are there prop tech specific investors there that you're running into or maybe collaborating with? We haven't seen it yet. I'm, I'm sure there will be. In the US, there's a handful of smaller, more like seed stage funds. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely a pretty robust ecosystem here. I'm sure the same thing will evolve in Europe. And we have not seen it in Asia either. I mean, my macro view, there are real network effects to having all this collaboration. We have 90 strategic real estate investors across wow. our $3 billion. So the pattern recognition we have around how an office owner should do anything with respect mm -hmm. to, to tech is really valuable. And so recreating that from scratch in a new geography has certain limitations. I mean, just in the last two years since we spoke, Connie, it, it's like night and day, right? <laughs> the prop tech had maybe a few public companies when we last spoke. Now it has like 15. The whole space has dramatically changed and that will happen in the US and that will happen abroad. And I think Fifth Wall wants to be a part of all of it. Brendan, so nice to see you. Thank you again for making time for us. And also for what it's worth, I don't know if you realize we're Facebook friends. I'm not sure how, and I'm not on Facebook all that often, but I always love seeing you and your dog, Lady Macbeth, on your different <laughs> adventures. Yeah, she goes everywhere with me. She's been a trooper through COVID. <laughs> I'm sure she's been good company. Anyway, uh, great to talk to you and see you. And uh, thank you again for making time for this. Of course. Thanks, Connie. That's it. Thanks for listening, everybody.